So, uh, last Sunday night we finished our last of what I call CSBC and Me Perspective Member Class. And I taught it the first eight weeks to the whole church because I wanted you to know what it is that I would be teaching to prospective members. Had some great feedback. Uh, we walked through all the doctrines of the Baptist faith and message. I shared my testimony and personal convictions. And uh, I, th- I think it was a great success. And so, uh, this morning was the first week that we rolled that into the Sunday school hour in my office. And I think we had seven there today. I'm pretty excited about. And two more that weren't there this week that are going to be coming as well. And it was a great time of fellowship to get to know one another. Heard a lot of great testimonies. And as now, as we were walking through session two next week, I'm just excited for what God is doing at this church. Uh, for those that finished the prospective member class, next Sunday is when we're going to be presenting them for a vote. Uh, so again, next Sunday will be the chance that we present those who finish the prospective member sessions uh, the first time around. So we're excited for that as well. So God continues to grow and to bless this church, and I'm just excited to be a part of it. So amen? Amen. I'm excited today because, of course, as you can see right in front of me, today is Communion Sunday. It is one of my very favorite things uh, that we celebrate in God's house, and I hope I can keep it, keep it together because it's, a, it's an emotional thing, and it should be. Um, it should be. It's a, it's a reverent ordinance that God has given to us, and we'll talk more about that as we partake in the service. But um, grateful that you are here to partake of the Lord's Supper, and we'll talk about that at the end of our time here this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, we are at the end of Mark chapter 2, and let me give you just a 60-second update on kind of where we're headed in this direction as well. We've been in Mark, uh, really, for several weeks now. I think this is week number 13, and we're just now finishing chapter 2 as we've been walking word for word, verse by verse, uh, through the exposition of God's Word. It's been always my desire as a pastor, as I walk through the Bible uh, and preaching and teaching, to do two things. To make sure that I don't sacrifice anything so that when I'm preaching, I go verse by verse but also to give us variety, okay? It was Paul who said in the book of Acts that he did not shrink from teaching the whole counsel of God. And so my plan has always been, as I prepared for the pastorate, is to take a book of the Bible, to go verse by verse as we walk through the chapters, and then pause, take a break, and shift gears in a new direction for a few months. And so my thought is for Mark, as we finish today in Mark 2, uh, probably at this time next year, we're going to pick up again at Mark 3 and walk through all the way till the end of Mark. Uh, but what we're going to do starting next week, of course, we have a lot of special events coming up. We have our homecoming on November 13th. The week after that, of course, is we're getting close to Thanksgiving, and I'm sure God will have me to proclaim a word of Thanksgiving from, the, from His Word. And then we're going to be walking into the, uh, towards the Christmas season. So starting in a few weeks after a couple of specific messages, as I pray for God to place them upon my heart, I am going to be entering into a time of a four-week study on the doctrine of confession. Okay, it's something we talk about a lot as Christians and specifically as Southern Baptists, but it can be a confusing doctrine. Sometimes we don't know what it is that God has called us to do, our responsibility of confession as believers in Jesus Christ. So in a few weeks, we'll have a four-week study where I will pick apart God's word. We will go word by word, verse by verse through these champion phrases and passages in God's word that have to deal with the doctrine of confession. And that's really my philosophy of preaching, going through books individually and then going through doctrines individually. And then on Sunday night, for those who are really hungry, taking those doctrines a level deeper and teaching them in a way that we can apply them in our lives. I, want, I don't want to sacrifice anything from God's word, but I also want to give us a steady diet uh, because there's a reason why there's 66 individual books. God has a lot to say, and we need to be ready to listen. So that's kind of my uh, philosophy of preaching and where we're going to go here the next few weeks. But 
We aren't there yet. Mark still has something to tell us today. He's had a lot to tell me the past week as I've studied for this message because this has been awfully convicting to me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28 as we talk about resting in a Sabbath Lord. But before I dive in, as I often like to do, I want to give you an illustration. Okay, an illustration to kind of prod your heart and your mind and prepare you for the message here today. And to do that illustration, I've got to go back to my childhood and pull out a movie from the 80s. Show of hands, who has ever seen one or several of the Karate Kids? Yes, this will make sense. And if you've not seen it, the illustration will still make sense. But Karate Kid Part 1 is a classic. All right, how many, I can tell you after watching Karate Kid Part 1, I drove my grandparents nuts because I karate chopped all the furniture in the house. And, and when I went to visit them at their condo in Boca Raton, Florida, they had a bathroom with saloon swinging doors in the bathroom, and I thought it'd be fun to do a crane kick on one of those doors, and the door did not last after the kick, so I was, I was in a little bit of trouble for that. But why do I bring up the Karate Kid? Well, there's a scene in that movie that I want you to think about, okay? There's, there's this, if you haven't seen the movie or if it's been a long time, the main character is a guy named Daniel LaRusso, and Daniel LaRusso was born and raised in New Jersey, good Italian boy, right? And then he it's called to move to California, and he doesn't really know anyone, and he starts falling into uh, this bad crowd where he's getting picked on and beat up by Johnny and all, all the other ones from Cobra Kai Dojo, and, and so he just, he's at the end of his rope, and then he meets Mr. Miyagi, this wonderful teacher, Mr. Miyagi, <laughs> and Mr. Miyagi begins to, to acknowledge that he's going to train him in martial arts, so Daniel LaRusso shows up the first week ready for training, and what is it that Mr. Miyagi has him do? Paint the fence. And what does he have him do the second week? Paint the house. And sand, sand the uh, deck. And then wash the car. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Man, you guys know this. Man, I could have preached a whole sermon on this. And finally, Daniel LaRusso has had enough. And at the end of these four or five weeks together, he goes up to Mr. Miyagi and he says, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of painting your house and painting your fence and sanding your deck and washing your cars. And, and, and Mr. Miyagi just looks at him and just goes, Ugh! and then he goes to throw a punch at him, and Daniel LaRusso blocks it. And he blocks it because he learned that from washing the car, and he learned that from sanding, sanding the deck and doing all those things. So why do I bring this up when we're talking about Sabbath rest? You're probably wondering where the connection is. Mr. Miyagi was showing Daniel LaRusso, I put these things in place not for me, but for you. Mr. Miyagi could have painted his own fence. He could have sanded his own deck. He could have washed his own car. And I'm sure before Daniel LaRusso moved there, that's exactly what he did. But he was showing him, I've put these things in place, not for me, but for you. Because as you painted the fence, you learned how to block those punches. As you were sanding the deck and as you were washing and waxing the car and as you were painting the fence, again, you were learning how to defend yourself. I did these for you, not for me, but for you. And that's the mindset that I want us to have today as we look into this doctrine of the Sabbath. It is something that God has given not for him, but for us. Again, we'll see at the end of the passage that we're going to read here today, God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay, it's a gift. We see it as an obligation, but it is a gift. And if I'm being honest with you, this may be something that I struggle with more than anything else I've preached since I started being your pastor. That's the convicting thing about being an expositional preacher. 
you expose the text as it's there. And when you walk verse by verse, you can't skip over the things either that you don't understand very well or that you're not very good at. I'm ha- I've had a tough time recently resting in the Lord in the Sabbath rest. And um, we'll talk more about that as we dive in. So I want to say in today's passage, we're going to look and see yet another confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. We've seen a lot of that in the recent words here that we've read. And the, the, the issue of confrontation is over what activities are permissible on the Sabbath day. And as this debate over the Jewish law rages on, as it has in previous passages, it is Jesus who reminds them and us that not only is Sabbath a gift and not a burden, but also that the ultimate Sabbath rest is found in Christ himself. He is our Sabbath Lord. And he's the one that we're called to rest in. So if you have your Bible, again, please turn to Mark chapter 2. And if you would stand out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, we will be reading Mark chapter 2. This is verses 23 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord starting in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you and praise you for this day that you have made. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath. What a blessing. What a blessing that we miss all the time. Father, I'm under deep conviction as I preach this message that I've been worse than most in keeping a holy Sabbath, a day of rest. Father, I pray that you would help me and help us as we walk through this passage to consider what it is that you would have us to understand about your reasoning for the Sabbath, what it is, what we're called to do, and how it is that we can rejoice in this gift that you have given us. And Father, I do pray in this sanctuary here this morning, if there is even one who cannot rest because they've not found rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I pray they would come to know that rest today. They would understand that he's done all that's needed to be done and that we are simply to respond in repentance and faith. I pray that you would remove old hearts and replace them with new ones. We pray for salvation to come to this house here today and we pray for a Sabbath rest as well. Well, Father, we love you. We thank you and praise you. Offer these words in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Well, this is a short passage, but it is a very important one. It's not the only passage that even talks about the Sabbath in the book of Mark. We mentioned it a few weeks ago, and when we pick this up again next year, there's a whole lot more when it comes to the Sabbath that we'll talk about. But as we walk through the passage here, there's, there's kind of, again, three checkpoints in the story that I want to stop and ponder what it is that God would have us to see. Okay, so number one, let's take a look at a Sabbath lunch. Okay, verse 23, real short passage, and we'll talk about the historical context. But a Sabbath lunch, verse 23 says, 
One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, let's say, let's put this in perspective, okay? We said this a few weeks ago, but if you weren't here, or if it's been a while since you've studied this, or maybe you've never heard of this before, the ancient Hebrews believed in the Sabbath. In fact, they called it Shabbat, okay? It's just another translation of Sabbath. And Shabbat took place Friday at sundown, and it lasted till Saturday at sundown. And it came originally from the fourth commandment handed down from God to Moses. And over the years, they would take this idea of Sabbath, and they would add these man-made laws around what God originally had said because they wanted to make sure they were protecting themselves from breaking the Sabbath rule. I love Shabbat. In fact, one of my best friends growing up was Jewish and lived across the street. And on Friday nights at sundown, we would go to his house. We'd spin the dreidels, all the things that Jewish kids like to do. And we, they used to have the, the bread laid out with a beautiful blue velvet cloth over it. And we'd remove the bread. And in fact, I heard him pray this prayer so much, I memorized it in Hebrew. I went back years later to find out the translation. But they used to break the bread, hold it up, and say, Adonai And that, that just means, blessed be my God, king of the universe. So the Sabbath was a way to rest, but it was a way to worship and a way to honor God. All right, But it's really important that we understand Sabbath as God handed it down to man and then all that mankind did to kind of muddy up the waters a little bit. All right, So I thought a helpful thing would be to read the Scripture to see how God handed it down and then talk specifically about how man has added to that. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Okay, Exodus chapter 20. Verses 8 through 11, this is, I'm sure, a familiar passage for those who own a Bible. Okay, this is the classic Ten Commandments. This is commandment number four, and the commandment says this. Again, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay? That's what God has handed down. Six days you work, seventh you rest. The seventh, of course, according to the calendar, many of us always tend to think Sunday, but Sunday is actually the first day of the week. We call it as part of our weekend, so we tend to think of it as the end of the week. But in the Old Testament, they practiced Saturday as the end of the week, the seventh day, a time for them to rest. Now, just a point of application before we move on to the context here. If you're curious as to why we as Christians worship on Sunday and not Saturday, we do it to commemorate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior who came out of the tomb on Sunday. Every Sunday you walk through that door, you ought to think about Jesus walking out of that tomb. It's the reason why we worship on Sunday. But the concept of the Sabbath is still very important, even for Christians here today. We'll get to that. But what is taking place in this individual context? Well, in the context, as we were looking at the passage, it says one Sabbath he was walking through the grain field. That's Jesus. And as they made their way, that's his disciples, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Pretty simple stuff, right? They're walking through neighboring grain fields and they're plucking pieces of grain and they're rubbing the grain in their hand. They're, they're blowing off the shaft and they're just, they're eating it. They're getting a little Hebrew lunchable, all right? It's basically what they're doing. Now, is it permissible? 
All right, let's stop and think about this. Well, we know, it, aside from the Sabbath, it was permissible to go into a neighbor's grain field. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, and I love to hear the sound of those pages turning. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25 says this. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Pretty simple. Don't collect their harvest, but you can benefit from it. If you're walking through and you're hungry, all right, this is a benefit of the community. I know this is kind of not really a full one-for-one correlation here, but uh, as a northerner who's moved down south, I've always been fascinated by cotton. And there's many times I've pulled over on the side of the road and picked up some of the cotton that was left over in the field. Now, that doesn't mean that I show up with a John Deere and go pull somebody's cotton and take it to the market myself. But I'll take a piece of cotton here or there, and I don't think anybody's ever yelled at me for doing that. All right, so put this in the context of historical biblical times here in the Old Testament. You know, that the grains, they were not going to ruin somebody's crop for brothers and sisters walking through town to pluck some heads of grain and to rub it in their hands to separate the wheat from the chaff and just to, to eat it. But now you bring in the idea of the Sabbath, okay? And that moves us to checkpoint number two, a Sabbath law, okay? Let's look at verses 24 through 26 again. It says this. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? Jesus is interpreting their interpretation with another interpretation of Scripture. He's fighting Scripture with Scripture. And I think he's on good grounds to do that, first of all, since he's God, and second of all, since he wrote the Scriptures. I think the author has room to speak, and Jesus speaks right away. Now, let's, again, drill down and look at the context here. Why is it that the Pharisees would be up in arms about people walking through the grain fields and plucking the heads of grain? Well, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in context, we need to understand that the Jews at this time Okay, Second Temple Judaism, this is after the exile to Babylon, before Jesus Christ dies and is raised up again. They've rebuilt the temple, and they've established what this holy book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is a commentary on Jewish law. And let me tell you why it was really important to the Jews. Again, if you, if you haven't read or if it's been a long time since you've studied the Old Testament, you have this time during the time of Jeremiah where the people of Israel have been disobedient century after century after century, and God prophesies through Jeremiah that if they don't turn and repent and, and turn back to God, that they're going to be given over to their sworn enemies, the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happens. Je, uh, Jeremiah prophesies, they don't turn away. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, they burn the place down to the ground, they take the exiles, and they run to Babylon for 70 years. But at the end of 70 years, God in his grace and mercy brings them back. And they rebuild. And he reestablishes the covenant and the law. Now the Jews, who their entire generation died in exile, all right, in Babylon. I'm sure the parents were speaking to the children and said, if God ever brings us back to a holy land again, make sure you honor his law. So there, I think there's good intentions as to why they came up with what is called the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is a human interpretation of the law, and it, all these man-made laws are kind of fences that are put in place to make sure they don't break God's law. 
The problem is, as we often do as human beings, we're so focused on the letter of the law, we begin to miss the heart of the law. Now, in the Mishnah, there are 39 specific prohibitions on what you cannot do during the Sabbath. Again, those don't come from God. They come from man. But there's 39 different ones, and they're broken into four different categories. Those categories are activities required to bake bread, activities required to make a garment, activities required to make leather, and activities required to build a structure or a building. All right, many scholars believe that these categories were prohibited because they were something that you created or exercised control or dominion over. And so the Sabbath, they wanted to make sure that you were not creating or having dominion over anything. Well, the third of those 39 individual prohibitions is reaping. Reaping. Now, I believe that the true interpretation, even of the Mishnah, was reaping in terms of using a sickle, collecting the harvest. But the Pharisees see Jesus walking and see him plucking heads of grain, and they say, he's reaping. You should not reap. It is in our Mishnah. And Jesus is saying, first of all, I don't really think this is reaping, but second of all, I appreciate your Mishnah there, but I didn't write that. And I think you misinterpreted the reason for the law that my father has handed down to you. In fact, I even believe that the Pharisees thought that Jesus and his disciples were double lawbreakers because we said this a few weeks ago. They also had laws during the Sabbath about traveling. You could not go what was called 2,000 double paces of a Roman soldier. All right, It was not a very long distance to walk. If you were going to travel during the Sabbath, you better measure out where you're going and who you're spending time with because right, you only had that much time and that much distance that you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath. They were serious Sabbatarians, serious about this. But Jesus comes along and says, all right, I've had enough. You have misinterpreted this in several areas, and I'm going to show you by God's word. And he points to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to mention it because that's what he mentions. The context of 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6, he's talking about a time when King David and his friends were on the run and hungry after fleeing from King Saul. And when they did that, they went to the high priest, and the high priest gave them some of the consecrated bread to eat. The way that it used to work is the priest would go in, and they'd present the bread before the Lord, and the bread would be there a week. And as they took the bread and put new fresh bread, they were permitted to eat the old bread. Okay? So as the priests are eating the old consecrated bread, David asked for some bread, and the priest gave him some bread. Now, it seems in some way like it breaks the letter of the law, but it doesn't violate the heart of the law. And the reason why is this. When David ate the bread, saved only for priests, he broke the letter but not the heart because David and Jesus both understood that human need is more important than ritual observance. God cares about his people. And these laws are not to punish. They're to bring discipline, but they're not to punish. And they're also to point to the need for a Savior because he's the only one who can keep the law. But David ate the bread and he did not break the law because he stood by the heart of it. So Jesus reinterprets and says, you're getting it all wrong. When we said to rest on the Sabbath, this is for you. It's not for me. It's a gift to be enjoyed, not an obligation to be grunted over. And that leads us to our third and final point here in the message, and that's a Sabbath Lord. Let's look at verses 27 through 28. It says, and he said to them, 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So think about this. I read in Exodus, God handing down this fourth commandment. Think about the heart of the commandment. All right, it comes from the fact that in the creation account in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, we see God created the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh. And we've talked about this before, but if you've never noticed, at the end of each day as God creates, he looks back and says, this is good. This is good. But at the end of the sixth day when he creates human beings, what does he say? It is very good. Amen. We're the crown jewel of his creation. And so as he rests on the seventh day, it is one of the very first things that he models for his creation, and that is to rest. Does God need rest? Absolutely not. God was not sitting there dog-tired on a memory foam mattress after he created the earth the first six days. All right? He was doing it to go before us and model for us what it is that we need as well. Working six days, resting on the seventh day, and by the way, Jesus says, I'm Lord over all this. I'm Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, what do we take from this? Well, I think that we find in Jesus Christ in this passage both authority and rest. Okay, authority. As the Son of God, He is the authority to make and interpret the law. The Word comes from Him who is the Word. Jesus not only wrote the Word, He is the Word. It's the Word made flesh. So He's Lord. Even of the Sabbath, He knows the heart of the law. And we do well to listen in divine revelation instead of human interpretation to what that law is. But number two, not only in Christ do we find authority, we find rest. Because Jesus fulfilled the law. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The book of Galatians says that the law was a mirror. It was a tutor. It was a guardian that kept us until he came. It constantly showed us our need for salvation because we couldn't keep it. So how does that apply to us as Christians on the other side of the cross? All right, because we, we live by the law of Christ, which is strictly a law to love God and love others. There's still a Sabbath principle for us as Christians. All right, there's still a principle of working hard for six days and resting on the seventh, but we ultimately find our rest in Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm, I'm confessing this to you as I'm writing this message, as I'm pouring over this. I have failed in this a lot more than I've succeeded. The days that I find the most energy in doing what God has called me to do are the days that I meditate on the fact that God's love for me is not based on my works, but on Jesus' works. So not only does Jesus give us the Sabbath, he is the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, the people of God were supposed to look different than the rest of the world because the seventh day they were supposed to rest while everybody else was working. They were supposed to have this wonderful time of rest and blessing from God. That was supposed to make them look different than everyone else. As Christians on this side of the cross, every day we should have a rest about ourselves, not necessarily always a physical one, although that's important, but a spiritual one, that we're not aiming for perfection because it's already been achieved by Christ. The more that we meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ in our daily lives, the more that we think in all our failings about how Christ has already succeeded, the more rest that we're going to have. I spe- I'm preaching to myself. All right, I've been lovingly corrected by what has been called my adopted parents of Cedar Street, that my car has been in that parking lot a little bit too late, a little bit too long. I know this. So maybe we can do this together. 
You help me and I help you, and together God helps us. We do need a physical Sabbath, all right? My day off is supposed to be Friday. I've taken maybe two Fridays off since I've been here. I need, and, and I'm sure a baby's going to change that in a real quick minute. But uh, beyond the physical rest, there's also a spiritual rest. Have you ever met someone who is never in a hurry, but they are awful productive? I want to be like that. I mentioned a few weeks ago one of my favorite Christian writers. He was the absolute favorite writer of the pastor who mentored me, Steve Tillis. His name is Dallas Willard, and, and Dallas Willard said, I want to have a quiet time that lasts all day long. Does that mean he's on his knees reading the Bible every minute? No, it means he's taking that word and he's carried it with him throughout the day so that he's, he's never rushing, he's never panicking. He's always living in the rest that you get only from Jesus Christ. I'll say this last thing before we conclude. Um, you know when I see this idea of rest working the most? Hospice. Do you know as a pastor, and even as a youth pastor, when I went to visit folks in hospice, there were those who did not know Jesus Christ who panicked before death. They had no rest because they had no one to rest in. But do you know the people that I've been around in hospice who are Christian and who've come to the end of this journey and they're getting ready to be with the Lord? The peace and the rest they have, you can't manufacture that. That comes from God. I remember uh, Roy and Arlene Squires. You remember Roy and Arlene, Brother Larry? Great friends of the Guidos. My classmates at the Guido Bible Institute, Miss Arlene, had cancer. She had a, a, a short season of not panic, but really worry. It's natural to worry when you have cancer. But then she had this wonderful peace and rest come over her, and she began to rest in God. And as the, as the progression of the disease went to her final breath, I was with her one of those last days in that, in that hospice. It was amazing. She had the peace of God that transcends all understanding, as it says in Philippians chapter 4. It was because she was resting in Christ. Let's not wait till we get to hospice to find that rest. It's hard. I've I've failed a lot more than I've succeeded, but oh, I want to do well in this. I need to rest in Christ to help me to rest in Christ. Let's not forget that Jesus Christ is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so that leads us here to a concluding word. And our word is this, in conclusion. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who reigns as Lord of the Sabbath. Have you gone to Him alone to find rest? Let's make this real practical. Everyone, you may not have a Mishnah, you may not have a commentary, but you've made your own laws. We all have. All right? Can I read some of my man-made laws that violate the Sabbath? Thou shalt work until I complete my checklist. Thou shalt work until I make everyone happy. Thou shalt work until my boss is pleased. Thou shalt work until my family is proud. Thou shalt work until my bank account is full. And this one's real convicting for me. Thou shalt work until I've reached perfection in my own eyes. Those man-made laws will never bring us rest. If we work until we reach those things, we're never going to reach them. But we have a Savior who's reached them for us because we could not do it for ourselves. I'll close by saying this. Um, There's an author named John Piper. 
He has many books about many different things, but he has, he's big, and in, in the name of his ministry is Desiring God. And he talks a lot about having joy and desiring the Lord Jesus Christ and all that God does for us. And he has a book, and it's called When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. And he talks about one of these elements of fighting for joy is finding rest, physical and spiritual. Here's what he says. I once struggled with the truth that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit because I knew from experience that it is also a fruit of a good night's rest. In other words, I was more gloomy on little rest and more happy on good rest. What brought light to this perplexity is that one of the ways that the Spirit produces fruit in our lives is by humbling us enough to believe that we are not God and that God can run the world without us staying up too late or getting up too early. God has united the body and the spirit in such a way that careless uses of the body will ordinarily diminish our sight of the hope-giving glory of God. Not surprisingly, therefore, our joy in God usually decreases with inadequate rest. I would say that in our physical rest, and I would say that in our spiritual rest. Let us not live by laws to find a Sabbath rest. Let us find this rest in God, specifically our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the Sabbath and who we can rest in alone. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you and we praise you for this beautiful day that you have made. Father, there's not a more humbling thing to do as a messenger who preaches your word than to preach a message that I have failed in. So I say, change us, but first change me. Change me to change us. Father, help us to rest in you. Help us to put down the pen and the paper, turn off the computer and rest. Help us to find physical rest, but also spiritual. That we serve you, a God who's never panicking. Even in the midst of human chaos, Father, you are the calm in the storm. Father, we pray that you help us to rest in your Son, who is Lord of the Sabbath. We acknowledge that, Father, there are things that we do, laws that we make up that try to protect us and help us to live each day, and some of them are not wrong but help us to never take a man-made law and elevate it above your holy law, fulfilled only by Jesus Christ. Let us find rest in him today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.